Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here. We're so happy to have you. Let's go ahead and stand and worship our Lord together.
Good morning, Lighthouse Community Church. How are you doing? Please be seated. God bless you. Thank you all for your support these last few weeks. Pastor Eric is back, getting ready to start a new series today. Super exciting. And along with super exciting, I know the temperature outside is red, but that might actually be a good thing because come Monday or Tuesday, we may move from purple, which turns out purple is not a good color, to red, which means we might actually become official next Sunday, up to 100 people. I know it's going to be exciting. And I know it's red outside, and I hope you have some air conditioning, but we want you to know we're going to make it nice and cool and crispy for you next week, hopefully. Please keep us in prayer. We're so close, and you've waited so long. You've been so faithful and so patient. Thank you guys for doing all that. But the preschool is, in fact, opening next week. And Marge has got her hands full because not only is she full, but she's overflowing. So that's supposed to be a blessing, right? Blessed is the man whose quiver overflows. Well, Marge's quiver is overflowing. So please, if you could be keeping our preschool in prayer as they start next week, the biggest concern is little tykes wearing masks. You would not realize the controversies in life over little kids wearing masks. But guys, there's a lot of things going on. I know there's a lot of reasons to be thrown off. Hang in there. God is good. And we are so close right now to where we haven't been in, in quite a while that you've got to be excited about it. So find something cool to do today. Drink some water. Stay hydrated. God bless you guys. Let me pray, and let's get ready to start a whole new series in the book of Philippians. Father God, we thank you for what is another incredible opportunity to see your hand. And it feels like we've been waiting so long for some good news. And so I'm really excited. And I know that it's really hot outside, and it's hard to be excited about a whole lot. But this too shall pass. And the cool weather shall return. And Father, I just pray for all those that are out there listening, watching this morning, um, and long for the community of God. They long to be back with their brothers and sisters. I just want them to know this morning they're so close, Father. They're so close. Be with those whose heart's broken. Be with those whose anxiety and stress is extremely high. And watch over us today, Father, as we just kind of open our hearts and our minds to you to say, you know what, Father, here am I. Send me. Thank you for the opportunity to serve in our lives. Bless everything we say and do. We say in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Hefe. You know, one of the things I'm most excited about having the preschool back uh, is, is we get to start hearing the kids as they cross the street yelling out, thank you, God, for this beautiful day. It is, it is, they, they do it twice. When they're crossing the streets on the way in and when they're crossing the streets on the way back, thank you, God, for this beautiful day. And I just can't wait. Um, so, as, as Jeff has just mentioned, we are starting a new series today in the book of Philippians. And as much as I have absolutely loved working through the book of Acts over this last year, and it's been really relevant to our lives, i got to tell you that in my devotional life, I've actually been just spending time sitting in this particular letter, the letter that Paul wrote to the, the Christians living in the city of Philippi. It has probably become, this year at least, my favorite book. And I'm so excited that over the next 12 weeks, we get to dive into it. But, uh, as with any scripture, it's really important for us to interpret it correctly. right? And so what I want to do today is I want to begin by just having a conversation about how can we make sure that we read Paul's letter written to the Philippians in a way that it is honest and, and truthful to what he intended, as opposed to just making it say whatever we want to hear. So toward that end, there's two 
rules of interpretation that I want to remind us of. I, would, I say remind because for many of you, you've heard these before. I hope you know them. I hope this is review. And if not, these are really important things to keep in mind. The first rule of interpretation we want to keep in mind is that it is imperative that we read this letter literally. And when I say literally, I don't necessarily mean what you think I mean. I mean that we need to read this according to its literary genre. So, for instance, you read poetry different than you do history, right? You would, you would read a prophetic uh, book, like the prophets in the Old Testament, differently than you would read Revelation, I would hope, and differently than you would read a letter. And what we're dealing with in Philippians is we're dealing with a letter. It's a letter written by Paul who helped found that church community there in the city of Philippi to this church community that has been financially supporting him as a thank you letter. So it's important for us to understand the, the kind of what was going on, right? We need to understand that it is a letter, but as with a letter, we need to understand the circumstances behind it, which brings us to our second rule of interpretation. Context is key. Context is one of the most important things that you will ever need to wrestle with when you're actually studying scripture. So we need to consider two things, the historical context and the literary context. Let me explain what I mean by both of those. Historical context. We can't just look at scripture as something that fell out of heaven in these fake pleather-bound books that end up looking like they've got leprosy after a little bit of use um, with all of Jesus' words in red letters and written in English. That's not how it came about. In fact, what we consider the Bible, what we understand is one you know, unified thought, is actually 66 books penned over the course of about 1,500 years with 40 different authors whom the Holy Spirit inspired to write. But they were writing into very unique circumstances. I mean, think of how much America has changed since we were founded back in 1776. Right? A lot has changed in America. Now consider 1776. I mean, we're talking, what is that, 230, 40 years? Now consider 1,500 years. And how much would change? And each of those authors was writing to people living in those particular circumstances. So it's important for us to understand what was going on with them. It's important for us to understand who is writing and who they were writing to. The second thing that's important for us to keep in mind is that we can't just rip verses out of their context, right? We, the book of Philippians is full. I just read it this morning. It took me about 10 minutes to go through. And the book of Philippians is full of some of the most beautiful one-liners that we, we find in Scripture. Here's a couple of them. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've heard that one before. I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Have you heard that before? The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Or how about this one? God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. These are beautiful one-liners, things that we are probably familiar with. However, if we just pluck them out of their literary context, meaning the, the overall flow of thought, and we use them as 
bumper sticker slogans that we can throw up on our Facebook or Instagram page, or we uh, use them as fortune cookie promises from God, we are actually abusing Scripture. And what we can end up doing is we can twist Scripture to support any perspective we have. And so before we pluck these verses out of their context, we need to understand them in context. Uh, I was reading one theologian who explained this about why it's important for us to pay attention to context. Can we throw that up there for him? He writes this. The historical and literary context of the passages that we study act as safeguards against making a text a mirror of what we already believe rather than what it's supposed to be, which is a challenge to our sinfulness and an encouragement to our faithfulness. We dare not neglect these contexts for nothing less than Scripture's ability to speak prophetically to the modern church is at stake. In other words, if we just grab Scripture and read it without any thought for who was writing, who was he writing to, what were the circumstances going on, and what is the overall flow of thought, if we give no thought to those things at all, we can easily twist Scripture to support what we already think. Have you ever met anybody who does that? Yeah, me too. I do that. I, I, have, I have been guilty of looking into Scripture to find things that support what I already believe rather than going to Scripture as God's scalpel that he can use to begin to peel away my sinful selfishness. Now, probably the best metaphor that I have found to explain the approach that we want to take in reading Scripture, I'm stealing from another pastor down the street, and it's a, it's a baseball analogy. Can, so we, can we throw this up here for a second? You see this baseball diamond. A lot of times when we read Scripture, what is the first question we tend to ask of Scripture? What is this saying to whom? To me, right? I, have you ever asked that question? What does this say to me right now? When we read it devotionally, that's pretty much all we're asking. What is this saying to me? But I want you to notice on this baseball diamond that we have up here, that would be question number three. Which means, imagine for a second, and Kelly is a baseball player, so he, would get, he can answer this one for us. Imagine if I'm here at the plate, and somebody throws, probably underhand, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to hit it, throws the ball, and I hit it into right field. And then I turn and I start sprinting down the third baseline. What would the umpire say in that moment? You're out. Thank you, Darlene. You're getting a gold star today. I miss you. I miss you so stinking much. If you start by running to third base, you'd be out. And in the same way, if we start our biblical interpretation simply by asking, what does it say to me here and now? We're skipping first and second base. And we would be out. It, we, we have the potential to totally massacre the in, intent of the original author's writing. And so, here's first base. What was the original author actually saying to his audience? And second base then is how would they have responded? How would they have heard it? What would it have meant to them? Then after we've grounded it in how they would have understood it, can we then ask the question, well, what is this saying to us here and now in the 21st century in America? And then the final home plate where we always hope to get 
is how now shall I respond? How should I live with this truth of what God is saying to me through his word? That is where we want to get, but we've got to start by grounding it in what it meant to its original audience and how they would have responded. Does that make sense? Since I'm talking to a camera, I'm just going to trust that you're nodding your heads right now. So toward that end, although we're starting a series through the book of Philippians today, we're not going to actually start reading Philippians today. Instead, what I want to do is I want to paint the historical context for you so that when you this week read the book of Philippians in its literary context as one full letter, you'll have an understanding of it. So grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 16. As you turn in there, I know that we've just finished a series through the book of Acts. And I know that in some ways what we're going to talk about, for those of you who have been part of our church, this will feel like review. I hope so, because that means it, you're retaining what we've talked about. So I'm not going to go line by line through this, but I want to give the broad brush strokes of Paul's relationship. Because the person who's writing this letter, Paul, has a very specific relationship with the church. And when I say church, I don't mean a building in Philippi. I mean a group of people, the believers in Philippi, because the church is never a building. It's always the people. And that means even during this season of, of COVID shutdown, the church hasn't been closed, even though the building has been closed. We are the church. And in the same way, he's writing to the church, the believers that live in Philippi. And, I, and we want to understand what his motivation for writing it is. So, if you recall, back in Acts chapter 16, Paul set out on his second missionary journey, and his intent was to go into the province of Asia, which is like where Ephesus is. He wanted to go into this large space and begin sharing the gospel in all of the major cities, trusting then that the gospel would begin to percolate out into the surrounding areas. However, God had a different plan for him. He kept shutting doors on Paul. Let's go ahead and begin reading in Acts chapter 16, Verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. Are we having fun with all these names? But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter into that region. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas, which is a, a port town. On the Adriatic Sea. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we, so this is Luke writing, so it's Luke, Silas, Paul, Timothy, we got up at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them as well. Okay? So, the first thing we see, and this is what I love about Paul. And this is something we saw as we were working through the last section of Acts over these last several weeks. Paul is one of those guys who holds his plans very loosely. Yes, he had a plan when he set out from their home church on their second missionary journey. But he allowed the Holy Spirit really to guide and direct his steps. And, it, and, and he allowed closed doors to be an indicator. Nope, that's not the way that God wants us to go. And then he has this vision. Come to Macedonia. And he and his guides are like, that's where we're going. Because he 
He was one of those people who, although he planned his path, he recognized and embraced the idea that the Lord directs his steps. And as somebody who's just come off of a really long two-week road trip with my family, I spent a lot of time planning my path. And here's what happens for me, is I tend to get tunnel vision. Because I've got the itinerary, and we are going to work that itinerary. And we covered 4,000 miles in two weeks. And so sometimes I even found that I was so focused on getting to the next stop that I wasn't even fully present in the stop we were on. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that. My, now my wife is at home with our kids nodding her head going, yes, we needed a vacation from our trip when we got home. Because it's exhausting. Paul is not like that. I love the fact that he is adaptable. And when you follow God, when you allow the Holy Spirit to be your compass, really what it ends up being is you have to hold your plans loosely. Because he may sometimes have a different plan than you intended. And this plan was, come to Macedonia, go to that region that you were not planning at all to get to on this trip, because they need the gospel terribly. So that's what Paul did. He and his traveling companions jumped on a boat. They headed across the Adriatic Sea. Why don't we go ahead and throw the, the map up there for them? Uh, so here you have a map. He started out in Antioch, which is right about here on the left side of the picture. His plan was to go to Ephesus, which is right there in the middle, but instead God said, no, 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 come up here where the yellow arrow is to Philippi, okay? So this is in the region of Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. Philippi, let's talk a little bit about this city because it's going to be central, or it's going to be kind of the backdrop to this whole letter. Let's talk about the, the, the city of Philippi. Philippi as you'll notice, is, is separated from Rome. Rome is way over there to your right in the picture. Your left, fine, that works too. Um, whichever direction it is, it's over there. It looks like a boot. Rome was the capital city for the entire Roman Empire. Philippi was situated along what's known as the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was a thoroughfare. One of the things that made the Roman Empire hum, made it so successful, is they spent a lot of time on their infrastructure. Roads were radically important to their ability to, to move long distances. And the Ignatian Way was a very, very important one. It's kind of like the I-5 freeway to California, Oregon, and Washington, right? It is an artery that trucks and commerce are moving along constantly. And if you're trying to get some distance long, you're not going to take the, the, the one freeway along the coast, right? You're not taking PCH. You're going to take the I-5 freeway because it just, it's just straight. And that's what the Ignatian Way was. It was a thoroughfare that connected the province of Rome throughout that whole region. And the Ignatian Way went right through the center of town in Philippi. So Philippi became a, a hub for commerce. It became a place where people who had things to sell or people who wanted to, to trade and wanted to be successful, they were constantly coming through there. In fact, the first person that Paul meets when he comes into that city is a woman named Lydia, who we know as a merchant who, who made her living, made her fortune in purple cloth. And she was actually the first convert to Christianity. She believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul introduces her to Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. She believes, and she and her whole household, all of her slaves, everybody 
decides to accept Christ into their hearts, and they're all baptized. That's the beginning of his interaction there in Philippi. So their location is important, but even more so is the culture of that city. So let's talk for a moment about that. In order, though, for me to, to help you understand what Philippi was like, we need to back up by about 100 years. You see, about 100 years before Paul showed up, back in 42 B.C., there was a massive battle that took place in this region. And it was a battle between two warring Roman armies. On the one hand, you have two guys that are really well known for having assassinated Julius Caesar. A guy named Brutus and a guy named Cassius. They were leading a rebellion. On the other hand, you have two guys that even though Julius Caesar was dead, they were absolutely faithful to him. A guy named Mark Anthony and a guy named Octavian who was actually Julius Caesar's adopted son and would one day become known as Caesar Augustus. Okay, lots of names here. You have two armies. It's a civil war that's been brewing for a long time. And Brutus and Cassius's army is going up against Mark Anthony and Octavian's army. And it takes place right there in the region of Philippi. And ultimately... Mark Anthony and Octavius' army is victorious. They kill Brutus and Cassius, rout the army. They've won. They basically won Rome and control of Rome at that point. And so Mark Anthony and, and Octavius decide they're going to head back. But they've learned a lesson from, from Julius Caesar. You see, one of the mistakes that he made when he entered into Rome is he brought his armies across the Rubicon, across the, 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 the boundary. He brought them into Rome itself. And that was one of the reasons why he was assassinated. And so Mark Anthony and Octavius do not want to make the same mistake. They don't want to bring this battle-hardened army back to Rome. And so what do they do? He said, hey guys, great job. Thank you so much for fighting so hard. And in fact, as a thank you, we want to give you land. In fact, how about this land? This land's pretty nice, isn't it? And so right there in that place, they founded the city of Philippi. Or actually, they, they built out the city of Philippi. It was much, much smaller before this battle. Afterward, they built a Roman colony that we know as Philippi. And it was absolutely seated with Roman soldiers who, had, who got married had children, and a whole generation, maybe a couple of generations of Roman citizens grew up in that region so that when, the, when Paul shows up, he is not showing up to some Greek village. He's showing up to a Roman colony that is absolutely Roman in every single way. The architecture is Roman. The language is Roman. They speak Latin. Their worship is Roman. In fact, they were so nationalistically focused that they even had a temple to their emperor. Whomever the Caesar was at this time, that's our God. That's who we worship. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And you begin to understand why when Paul enters into this town and begins to say that Jesus is the true king of kings and the Lord of lords, he'd have some friction there. Does that make a little more sense now that we understand kind of what this city was like? Does it make more sense why the people that he ends up leaving behind are going to encounter a tremendous amount of pushback from people who don't consider a Jewish Messiah to have any sort of sway in their life because the, the, the emperor of Rome 
is everything to them. They're hugely nationalistic. They're very patriotic. Well, what happens next is that Paul at one point um, stirs up the ire of the people. And he does so in kind of an unexpected way. There's a gal that's been following him around, kind of saying, this is, you know, this is the God's anointed. Listen to him because he can tell you the way to be saved. And this goes on for so long that Paul recognizes there's an evil spirit that's trying to stir up dissension in a really odd way in this city. And he knows that this girl is oppressed by this spirit. So at one point he turns and he rebukes the spirit and drives it out of her. A slave girl who is healed from her demonic possession or oppression. But, as so often happens, her oppression has actually benefited somebody financially. Her owners have been making money off of her ailment. And they don't take kindly to the fact that Paul has just messed with their form of income. And so they decide to drag him before the magistrates, the Roman authorities in that town. But of course they can't just come straight out and say, this guy cost us money because he healed our slave. That wouldn't go over so well. So instead they decide to appeal to the city's patriotic fervor. Appeal to their Romanness. Let's read in verse 19 of Acts chapter 16. When this girl's owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the Roman magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us law-abiding Romans to accept or to practice. In other words, don't be mad at them because they took away our ability to make money. Be mad at them because they are advocating a king other than our king, our emperor. They're advocating a kingdom other than the kingdom of Rome. They're advocating customs other than how we as good Roman citizens live. That's why we should be mad at them. And of course, this is a slap in the face to this Roman colony that is hugely patriotic for Rome. And so the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the Roman magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. You don't need a, a trial. If, if you're accused of that, let's beat them up. After they'd been severely flogged, beaten up, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet into the wooden stockades. Let me ask you a question. Imagine for a moment that you set out on a missionary journey to share the gospel with people. And you had your, your eyes set on one space, one region. And instead the Holy Spirit leads you to a radically different one hundreds of miles away. To a city you weren't planning on going to originally. And when you get there, you're faithful to it. You're sharing the gospel. You're introducing people to Jesus. You even heal a woman who has been oppressed by evil spirits. And for all of your efforts, you get thrown into, into it like a mob surrounds you. You're beaten up and then you're thrown into jail. How would you feel? Would you feel discouraged? Would you begin to question whether you heard God correctly? God, God, am I really where you wanted me? Or, or would you go even further? Would you begin to say, God, what the heck? 
I mean, have I not been faithful to you? Have I not done what you wanted me to do? And this is how you repay me? And I have to confess that underneath that kind of knee-jerk response, which I suspect I might feel if I were in these circumstances, underneath that is an assumption that many of us carry into our relationship with Jesus with. And here's the assumption. God, if I follow you, if I'm faithful to you, if I watch the message at some point uh, during the week, if I give financially, then you're going to take care of me. And take care of me means you're going to protect me from discomfort. You're going to help me be safe and comfortable. I know, darling, not you, but we can't all be saints like you. This assumption is one that is really easy to buy into. This assumption that if you say yes to Jesus, he will give you your best life ever. The truth of the matter is, as you read scripture, we don't find that. That's not what Jesus promised those men and women who followed him. He promised them, guys, if you follow me, they will persecute you just like they persecuted me. And he warned his disciples on the night before he was crucified for our sins. He warned them, guys, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to encounter pushback. You're going to encounter things that will discourage you. Many of you will give your lives for your faith. In this world, you will have trouble. But you can take heart in the fact that this, you know, you know, I have already overcome the world. And he was going to do so by hanging on the cross. Because of what he was about to do for them, the brokenness of this world and the persecution we encounter and the discomfort of life in a sin-scarred world where our bodies break down and relationships break down and we divide across political lines and we divide across social lines. All of those things will be overcome because Jesus gave us a way through it. And that's one of the the reasons why we're studying Philippians is because we're going to look at one of the ways that we can live as people who transcend those striations in our culture. The things that divide us, Paul does a great job of articulating how we can overcome them and how we can be the kind of people who live differently than the society around us, live in a way that is redemptive. I can't wait to start grappling with that. But, if I'm honest, there's a party that we, part of me that would probably feel pretty sorry for myself if I was in Paul's position. If I was bloody and bruised, sitting in a jail cell with my feet in wooden stockades. But look at the way that Paul responds. This is in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Paul's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not going, oh, woe is me, God, where are you? No, he's worshiping God. And by what I, when I say worship, I mean he's aligning his mind with that of God's, right? Worship means to ascribe worth to something. And rather than Paul ascribing worth to his own comfort and saying, that's the most important thing, God, why aren't you taking care of me? He's recognizing, God, you are God and I am not, so I'm going to 
align myself underneath you and submit to you and trust you in the midst of my circumstances, as opposed to flipping it and saying, God, the, your greatest good is to take care of me. That's what Paul and Silas are doing, is they are ascribing worth to God and they are praying to him. And they have a captive audience literally listening and watching all of this play out. And then, some of you might remember what happens after that. As they're worshiping and singing and praying, there's a huge earthquake. And the doors of the jail cells open up. And the, the, the locks on their stockade comes undone. And they're freed. And when the jailer wakes up and realizes that the doors are open, he assumes that all of the prisoners have escaped that's his life on the line, and so rather than wait to be dragged before the magistrates and publicly humiliated as he's killed, he decides he's going to take his own life. But Paul and Silas stop him and say, wait a minute, we're all still here, don't kill yourself. And the jailer rushes in, and he's overcome in that moment because he just went from death to life seeing all of the prisoners and he knows that these men have been are in jail for the name of Jesus and he's heard that they were accused of, of saying that we have the words of life and so he asks them how can I be saved suddenly the prisoners are the ones who are setting prisoners free suddenly the jailer becomes the prisoner who's asking to be set free and Paul has the opportunity to share the gospel with him and he brings them home, and he cleans them up, and he introduces them to his family, his oikos, his sphere of influence. And Paul has the opportunity to share the gospel with them as well. And that jailer's entire family gives their hearts to Jesus that night. An entire family is introduced to and welcomed into the family of God. And then afterwards, he takes Paul back, and the next day, Paul and Silas are released from prison... They go back to Lydia's home. Lydia is this dealer of purple cloth, the first convert to Christianity. It's where they had been staying when they were staying in Philippi. They share all of what happened. They pray over them, and then Paul and Silas and their team move on. They go to the next city. But that was the beginning of a relationship between Paul and the Christians living in Philippi. Fast forward. Over the course of the next several years, the church, the community of Christians in Philippi would become a couple, like Paul's best financial supporters. They not only encouraged him with their words, but they encouraged him financially by enabling him to continue to travel around and share the gospel in city after city after city. But now we're going to fast forward a decade. It's now somewhere around 61 A.D., Paul finds himself yet again imprisoned. This time it's probably in Rome, although there's a possibility that it could be in Ephesus, but chances are it was in Rome. Paul is awaiting the trial that we read about in Acts chapter 26, 27, 28, right? We read about all of Paul being accused by the Jews and having to go stand trial before Felix and, and the other Roman governors, and ultimately he appeals. He says, I'm a Roman citizen, and so they say, well, then you need to go to Rome, and they ship him off to Rome, and there's a shipwreck in the midst of that, and he maintains his head while everyone around him is losing theirs. He gets bit by a snake, and he doesn't go, oh, woe is me. He, God uses that serpent bite to unlock that entire island 
to the gospel. And as Jeff mentioned last weekend, that island is now the, one of the most Christian-heavy islands in the entire world. Something like 95% of the people that live on Malta consider Jesus Christ their Lord and their Savior. And ultimately, he winds up in Rome. And he is under house arrest, awaiting trial. And that is probably where Paul writes his letter to the Philippians. When he writes it, he's writing it to a community of people that are uh, they're unique within their atmosphere. Because when you typically look at a Roman society, it is striated. There's hierarchies. And people who are on the top of the pile, the people who are wealthy, the people are, who are well-connected, do not interact with the people beneath them. And they certainly don't interact with the slaves in their community. And yet, the community that Paul is writing to is a community that's made up of lots of different people from lots of different walks of life. You've got Lydia, this merchant, this wealthy, wealthy woman who has made her money off of selling purple cloth. You've got her family. You've got her slaves. You've got a Roman soldier his family, his slaves. You might even have this slave girl that the, the evil spirit was excised out of. All of them, and those are just the ones we read about, all of them plus many others are part of this house church, this community of believers in Philippi, and that's who Paul is writing to. But the reason for him writing is because once again Paul finds himself imprisoned. And when those believers living in Philippi heard that Paul was imprisoned, awaiting trial, probably in Rome, they decided they wanted to encourage Paul. They wanted to encourage him physically by sending one of their own to be there. A guy named Epaphroditus is the one who does it. He, he's the one who goes to encourage Paul and see him in his jail cell or in, in his home where he's under house arrest. But they also scraped together money. And they weren't a wealthy church. They didn't have a ton of money but they were faithful. And so they scraped together what little money they had and they sent it with Epaphroditus to help financially support Paul. Because unlike our penal system where the state supports those who are imprisoned, in the Roman days, those who were imprisoned had to pay their own way. You had to pay for your own food. Had to pay for your rent of where you were staying. And if you didn't have a place to stay, then you had to go to jail. And so Paul needs to pay for all these things. He's not going to make his money at this point by selling tents because he can't make the tents because he's under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. So instead what they do is they send money to help financially support him. And what we have in the letter to the Philippian church is a thank you note that Paul writes to say thank you to this community of believers that is financially supporting him during his imprisonment. But it's so much more than that. Because as he writes it, he writes it to this group of people, a beautiful community living in the very Roman city of Philippi. Living around people who think that they are crazy. Who think that they are radically unpatriotic because they don't worship the Roman emperor. They worship some crucified carpenter. What kind of idiots would do that? right? And he writes to encourage them to live as ambassadors of Christ in that sphere of influence with the people around them. 
And guys, I got to tell you, as much as this letter was written 2,000 years ago and was written specifically to them in their unique circumstances, I can't think of another letter right now in our unique circumstances that speaks more to what we are walking through. As we're walking through a season where we too are under house arrest in some ways, where when we want to interact with people, we have to put on face masks and we feel put upon, or we feel like we don't know who we can trust, and everybody that we talk to has a different perspective on what is right and what the appropriate way to to operate is. As we look at an election that is radically divisive, and we become more and more polarized as a people, and our world seems to be burning down around us, And everything that we thought we knew about life in America is being thrown out the window. I can't think of a letter that speaks more to how we should live here and now as citizens of a kingdom that is there and then. We get to live as ambassadors of hope. And this letter will begin to give us some handles on how to do that. So I can't wait to dive into it. But I've talked way too much today. So I'm going to stop. And instead, I'm going to give you a challenge. Because remember, at the beginning of this conversation, I said that we need to read this book literally. And what I meant by that is we need to read it according to its literary context. Philippians is a letter. It was written by Paul. It was written to a community of Christ followers living in the Roman town of Philippi. And when he wrote it, he would have never expected people to read it the way we tend to read it, which is to say, go to Philippians, read one paragraph or maybe a couple of sentences, put it down and say, cool, I'll read the rest tomorrow, or I'll read another couple of of sentences tomorrow, right? Imagine if somebody sent you an email. It was a lengthy one maybe a page or two, and you read one paragraph of that email and said, that's good you know, food for thought, and you walked away, and then you came back to it the next day, and you read the next paragraph, and then the next day you read the next paragraph. Do you think that maybe you would lose the overall flow of thought? Do you think that maybe it would begin to feel more like little bits and bites, little one-liners, fortune cookie promises, and social media splashes? And we want to ground our study of the book of Philippians by reading it as it was intended, as a letter. And so here's my challenge to you. This week, I want to challenge you to read the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi from beginning to end. It's four chapters long. Did it this morning for like the dozenth time. It takes all of 10 to 15 minutes. But here's the beautiful part. You already have the historical context. We've been talking about it. So now you get to read it with that perspective. And for those of you who are in life groups this week, if you guys are gathering, you have a unique opportunity to do it even with the mindset of somebody who is living in that day. There's a, there's a fun way that we've put together for you as a life group to read it together. So I encourage you as life groups to read the book of Philippians in one sitting. Your life group leaders have the, the, the curriculum for that. But let's not turn this into a mirror that simply reflects what we already think and affirms how we're already living. Let's allow God's word, and particularly Paul's letter to the Philippians, to speak prophetically into our life. Let's do so by reading it 
according to its context, as a letter written to a people 2,000 years ago that still speaks to us today because this is God's word. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can cut right to the heart. It has been for me. For months on end, it has been cutting me right to the heart and convicting me that I still have a lot that I can learn about what it means to reflect Christ's heart here and now. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Let me just pray for us. Pray for us as we go into our Labor Day weekend. Pray for us as, as we get to now go and be the church. Father, I love you, and I'm so grateful that we in you are family. I'm grateful for the ways that you guide our steps even when it looks different and deviates from the path that we have planned. I'm grateful for the hope you give us even in the midst of such depressing circumstances that we continue to find. God, we pray that you would shine brightly into our hearts and that, you, that our lives would become a reflection of your heart for our community. God, we lift up those who are fighting fires. We lift up those who are picking up the pieces of hurricanes. We lift up those who are trying to navigate social unrest. We lift up those who are on the front lines of protecting others. We lift up those who are trying to navigate the political stuff right now. God, we lift up this place that we call home, recognizing that we're aliens and strangers here, that we are citizens of a different kingdom, your kingdom. We pray that your will would be done and it may it begin in our hearts and permeate into our homes and spill over into our neighborhoods and our cities and ultimately change the face of the earth. May your will be done. May it be done in us. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together.
let's go ahead and stand for this next song and proclaim all that we believe. Confidence.
Well, this might be the last weekend that we have to do everything remotely. I am praying that um, by Tuesday or Wednesday, we hear some good news, and we have been dropped from purple up to red, which means that we can have an open service again. So be, please be praying for that. Pray uh, that our numbers would be low so that we can begin to gather again. And I will let you know as soon as we know, one way or the other. Either way, I do know this. We're getting close. In the meantime, I, I think about the fact that it's Labor Day. I think about what Labor Day is about, a time, a time for us to rest and take a day off. And I am just so stinking grateful that Jesus died 2,000 years ago so that we could have true rest. That we don't have to try to labor for our standing with God, but we can rest in Him. So this Labor Day, despite how hot it might be outside, may you simply rest in the truth that you are a son or a daughter of God and that you're part of a really big, sometimes dysfunctional, but really fun family, and we get to do this for eternity. We get to worship together. So, now Lighthouse Community. Go be the church. Have a wonderful week.